Join Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin for a new edition of the Capital Ideas Podcast. In unscripted conversations with investment professionals, you'll hear real stories about successes and lessons learned, informed by decades of investment experience. It's your look inside one of the world's largest asset managers. New episodes are available monthly. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Invest 30 minutes in an episode today. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Keir Starmer's Labour Party suffered a historic upset on Thursday with the Conservative Party winning the Hartlepool by-election. Labour have taken people in Hartlepool for granted for too long. Um, I heard this time and time again on the doorstep. People have had enough and they've made it clear it's time for change. Welcome to Payne's Politics, your essential insider guide to what's happening in British politics from the Financial Times, with me, Sebastian Payne. This week, we'll be discussing the Hartlepool by-election result, as you heard from its new Tory MP, Jill Mortimer, at the beginning, and similar results across the rest of England. So why did Labour lose the seat, and what does it mean for Keir Starmer's leadership? Joining to discuss is political editor George Parker and chief political correspondent Jim Picard. Plus, we'll be looking at the UK's brief war with France over fishing this week. Clashes between boats in Jersey were prompted by concerns over post-Brexit red tape. Has the UK broken the terms of its trade agreement or are both sides just cage-rattling? Public policy editor Peter Foster will explain, along with special guest Georgina Wright from the Institute Montaigne think tank in Paris. With George and Jim, welcome back to the pod. Morning, Seb. Morning. So we've all been out and about on the campaign trail. And as listeners can hear, I'm full of cold, having spent far too many hours on the freezing, cold, wet seafront of Hartlepool. Um, Jim, whereabouts have you been out and about? So I went up to Hartlepool a couple of weeks ago, and it's my first trip up north for quite a while. I had fish and chips with my parents at the Harbour Cafe because they live only about 40 minutes drive away. I didn't actually know Hartlepool that well, so it was the first time that I'd been there properly for a very long time. And it was just really good to be out and about talking to normal people about politics. The sun was shining. The place in some ways looked beautiful in the sunshine. You couldn't get away from the fact that it is also one of the most deprived towns in England. I've not been to Hartlepool since I was a child, actually went to a visit to the marina. So I shared a similar experience to you. George, what about yourself? I think you've been in a different part of the north. That's right. Yeah, I was up in uh, Manchester with uh, our colleague Andy Bounds, um, meeting Andy Burnham, the prospective mayor of Greater Manchester. And there's a moment actually where we were chatting to Andy Burnham. I was asking why he was bucking the trend in Manchester. And he said, well, I come from the area. I live locally. I spent my time working with homeless people. And that's why I've got this connection with people. I thought, hmm. And I reflected on that on Friday morning. Think about the way that Boris Johnson has a connection with people, even though he's an old Etonian who very clearly comes from the South. And it's interesting how you can have very different ways of connecting with voters. Well, with that in mind, let's move on to the main topic of the week. In the early hours of Friday morning, the Conservative Party was declared victorious in the Hartlepool by-election. In this northern port town, the Conservatives put on a whopping 23% of their vote share, while Labour saw its vote fall by 9%. It confirmed that what happened in the 2019 election was not a one-off result. There appears to be a structural realignment taking place in British politics. The pattern of Hartlepool was replicated elsewhere, with Ben Houghton returning a resounding victory as mayor of the Tees Valley region and the Tories gaining council seats elsewhere in the country, which is quite a feat for a party that's been in power for a decade. 
All this puts pressure on Keir Starmer's leadership and where he goes next. Steve Reid, the shadow local government secretary, told the BBC that Labour would have to change more radically. It was, you know, for me as a Labour Party member, absolutely shattering to see a Conservative MP elected in a place like Hartlepool after uh, nearly 50 years. And I think what this shows is that although we have started uh, to change since the cataclysm of the last general election, that change has clearly not gone far enough uh, in order to win back the trust uh, of the voters. And we've just seen that in spades, haven't we, in Hartlepool? So, Jim, we've all been on the campaign trail and I think we both felt it was probably going to go Conservative. And the reasons are ones our listeners will be familiar with. The hangover of Brexit, the feelings about Jeremy Corbyn's leadership. But I don't think either of us felt there was going to be such a big shift towards the Tories because getting over 50% of the vote in a by-election is only the second time in 40 years that a governing party has gained a seat in a by-election. It really is quite a consequential result. Yeah, I remember swapping WhatsApp messages with you, Seb, a couple of months ago, and and we both thought that a big chunk of the 10,000 people who voted for the Brexit party back in 2019 would go to the Conservatives. I think what we probably didn't anticipate was there was also seems to have been a fair amount of switching from Labour to the Conservatives. It really does put Keir Starmer in, in a terrible pickle. He's going to find himself torn between left and right once again. And when a party sort of fights and squabbles and looks depressed... I mean, they sort of look today a bit like a losing team in The Apprentice in the cafe the morning after, kind of dissecting why everything went wrong. You know, it's very hard for them to convince the public that they're a government in waiting. And I think there's a couple of factors as well. You, know, you mentioned Brexit. The other factors sort of at play there as well are a lot of money's gone to the Tees Valley from the Conservative Treasury. I think also we both picked up on our travels that Keir Starmer is really not getting people's pulses racing. Even people who respect him they're not getting excited by the Labour leader. And George, when you look at that result there, it really does suggest that what we saw in 2019, this big shift of these former Labour heartlands over to the Tory party was not just a one-off because that election did have a very particular set of circumstances. You had Boris Johnson's Get Brexit Done slogan, which we know got Brexiters and Remainers on side who were just fed up of the whole arguing over Brexit. But you also had Jeremy Corbyn, who was a historically unpopular Labour leader. Now, obviously, well over a year after that, Jeremy Corbyn has left the scene. He's even left the Labour Party, in fact, because he was kicked out by Keir Starmer and is sitting as an independent. And Brexit has been fully done, although there is still a sense it's got some salience on the doorstep, but it suggests that maybe this problem for Labour goes beyond that. We're talking a few hours after the result came through in Hartlepool, and my experience of covering by-elections is quite difficult to have a sense of perspective sometimes and sort of think of you know, how things might pan out over the next few months. And there were particular circumstances around the Hartlepool by-election. The fact that the Brexit party in 2019 won over 25% of the vote, that meant that there was a Brexit party vote to be squeezed by the Tory party. And of course, we shouldn't forget that we are still in a pandemic and how much of a role the pandemic played in Hartlepool, but also in other results around the country. I think what we will see is that incumbent parties, whether it's the SNP in Scotland or Labour Party in Wales or indeed Boris Johnson in England, will probably be the beneficiaries of people thinking actually they haven't handled the pandemic too badly or at least we're coming out of it. So I think those are extenuating factors. But nevertheless, Jim's mentioned already, the Hartlepool election did expose long-term structural problems facing the Labour Party. The fact that it hasn't found a way of reconnecting with its core votes in the north of England and 
Brexit was certainly a factor. But the problem, I think, is that the Labour Party feels nervous about going in the direction that it needs to go in to win the kind of voters who switched to the Tories in Hartlepool. And you speak to Tony Blair about this, he'll say, look, the first thing you have to do if you're going to win seats like Hartlepool is you have to be tough on law and order. You've got to show that you love your country. You've got to be proud of the military. And all of those things are the kind of things there are certain people in the Labour Party, and we've heard from some of them on Friday morning, who simply sneer at that idea and think that is precisely the wrong sort of thing for a Labour Party to do. Well, that's all very well if you represent a seat in London or Brighton, but not so good if you're trying to win votes in Hartlepool or Middlesbrough. Indeed. Jim, the other issue you've got is that what Brexit and Corbyn did was to completely sever the umbilical cord that linked these traditional heartland places that had a working class industrial heritage. Obviously, much of that industry has withered. In some places, it's completely declined away. And when you had those two particular events of Brexit and Labour ending up in a position that was seen as pro-Remain when it went into 2019 with having the option of a second Brexit referendum on the ballot paper, plus this cultural divide that was created by Jeremy Corbyn's leadership, Keir Starmer has yet to offer an active reason for these people to come back. And there seems to still be a sense on the left and the right that these people will just somehow realise the Tories are bad, they're not delivering for them, and they will just come back to our tribe. And I think for me, what Hartlepool has confirmed is that is not going to happen. And Labour has to work much, much harder at figuring out what is that new message or to channel George H.W. Bush, they need to find the vision thing. Yeah, my theory on all this is that the political dividing line in British politics used to be largely economic, and that the Conservatives were the party of landowners and big business and those who already had assets. And the Labour Party was, of course, for the sort of blue-collar manual workers, to put things very sort of broadly. And then Margaret Thatcher managed to kind of bend that narrative in the 80s. I suppose things like council house sell-off enabled her to take a big chunk of the white working-class vote. And then I think what's happened... In the last five or 10 years, and you could blame social media to a large extent, but what has crystallised is, is a totally different dividing line, which is the cultural dividing line, which is, do these politicians in London share our kind of world outlook and attitudes? And Brexit was a culmination and the crystallisation of that. It was not really about the EU and about Brussels so much as, are you on inverted commas, progressive side of everything or small c conservative side? And when I say everything, I mean the royal family, the military, as George mentioned, but also just things like how you see the world, whether you worry about climate change, whether you think the internet is a force for good or for bad. And they look at Labour Party politicians and talking about white working class voters in places like Hartlepool, they don't see their own views being echoed. And you take something like the row between the royal family and Meghan Markle and you know, I think a lot of voters somewhere like Hartlepool would have been on the Queen's side of that argument rather than Meghan Markle's. But if you look at the outpourings from Labour politicians, they're very much of the view that Meghan Markle was the aggrieved party in that particular dispute. That's just one example of where, even though Keir Starmer is trying to make this kind of flag-wielding, pro-British military, blairish attempt to get on the other side of the culture war, I think people instinctively feel that the Labour Party and its MPs are not necessarily on their side on these issues. And it's partly about the tone, isn't it, Jim? It's a about the tone, about the way you speak about towns and about your country. And Boris Johnson has found a way of conveying a sense of optimism and talking up places and talking up Britain. Whereas sometimes with Jeremy Corbyn, I think to a lesser extent with Keir Starmer, it often sounds like they're presenting a slightly downbeat, miserable interpretation of the country they live in. 
And, you know, if you're living in difficult circumstances and your life is not particularly happy, what you want is a politician who gives you an idea of how you can be lifted out of that situation rather than someone who tells you repeatedly how bad things are. Yeah, and what we've seen in the Tees Valley is that Ben Houchen via Rishi Sunak in the Treasury has delivered things like Freeport status, the new Treasury North Outpost in Darlington, new wind farm investment in Teesside. In the longer term, you know, there's only so long that Boris Johnson can keep telling the whole of England that their prospects will improve. At some point, people are going to look around in three years or five years or 10 years and say, well, has this happened? But I think the remarkable thing is that Boris Johnson can do that after 11 years of a Conservative government, just basically pretend that he had nothing to do with the David Cameron and Theresa May administrations, which is a remarkable piece of political alchemy. Indeed. And this is one of the things, George, I think is very important in all this, that particularly if we look at the Tees Valley mayoralty, where Ben Houchen was re-elected as expected on a very, very wide margin. A lot of it is about personality here, that I was up in Stockton, which is at the half of the Tees Valley um, last week. And the key thing is, it was really the two Bs. It was Boris Johnson and Ben Houchen. They are both incredibly popular up there. And they are seen as people who are delivering actual change. And in many ways, they're seen as political insurgents in the same way that UKIP and the Lib Dems once were. And of course, the more the Tories keep winning on this platform of we're going to deliver change, we're going to bring back lost jobs, we're going to reinvigorate infrastructure, the more the pressure is to deliver on that. And I think this is the challenge really over the next three years for the Johnson government, because they've lost two years to coronavirus and they've still got this broad levelling up agenda, which is about trying to tackle these long-standing problems in regional inequality. And I think based on my time in Hartlepool, that's what people are looking for. They want to feel their lives are getting better, they're getting new jobs, there's things being done to improve skills. I think what Labour is partly banking on is that they don't think Boris Johnson will deliver. And then they can say, oh, well, it's typical old Tories. But of course, if they do deliver, then that is a very potent thing. You know, the same old Tories argument hasn't worked particularly well as a message over the last few years for the Labour Party. Like, I think you're right. I mean, the challenge for Boris Johnson, the Conservative Party, is to prove that levelling up is more than just a slogan. And as you were writing the other day, Seb, the government set up a unit now in number 10 to try and define exactly what levelling up is and how you measure it. But I think Labour would be making a mistake if it just thinks that their best hope is for things to go badly wrong and for people to feel let down by the end of this parliament. Looking back at the situation where Tony Blair became leader back in the 1990s, and also Harold Wilson in the 1960s, both of them came in actually off the back of an economic boom. And I think probably best hope for Labour is that there's, there is a big bounce back economically from the pandemic. We see some rapid growth over the next two or three years. People feel a lot better in their lives. And then the Labour Party can go into the next election saying, look, things are getting better, but we can make them even better still and share out the fruits of this economic growth more evenly than Boris Johnson would. I think if we go into the next election with the economy looking bad or public services being in a mess, then still the public will say to hmm, is Labour the party actually that's going to make things better? I think the other thing we haven't really talked about is how there is a big vacuum where Keir Starmer's economic policy, or indeed any policy really is. I mean, I think to be fair to him and his team, that is derived from two things. Firstly, they wanted to come in and basically clean up the Labour Party as they would see it, getting rid of anti-Semites, Corbyn's departure and all the rest of it, and also kind of show a different face to the world, show that the party's under new leadership and all that stuff, which Keir Starmer keeps talking about. And then they would turn their minds to policy. But what has happened with the pandemic is that events have been so fast moving 
Secondly, no one's paying attention to what the opposition party would say. And thirdly, when you've got a, a Tory government ringing up £407 billion of borrowing, you know, where is the space for a centre-left party to talk about how they would do things differently? It's quite hard to see what the message would be. But I think there is a sense among the electorate that they don't really know whether Keir Starmer's policies would be more Tony Blair or more Jeremy Corbyn or equidistant between the two. And I don't even know whether Keir Starmer knows that either. I think that is the fundamental question they need to work out fairly soon. And I think the fundamental question now going forward, Jim, is what about Keir Starmer's leadership? Because already on Friday morning, you've had the Corbynite left coming out the trap saying this is proof we need to get back to the Corbynite agenda. And they've been arguing that Jeremy Corbyn held Hartlepool while helpfully ignoring the fact that he lost 40 other seats with very similar demographics to Hartlepool. You've had the old guard from New Labour saying this is proof that we need to get back to a much more centrist agenda within the Labour Party. What is actually going to happen, do you think? There's talk of maybe a reshuffle in his shadow cabinet. May there be a leadership challenge or will he just stay the course, do you think? I think there probably will be a reshuffle. I think that's been in the works for some while. I think the biggest question is whether he will move some of his most senior personnel, including the shadow chancellor and the shadow home secretary. That's been rumoured for quite some time. Or whether it will be a more of a cosmetic reshuffle. So we probably won't have that long to wait for that. I think there could be a leadership challenge from the left. Does it have any chance of success? I would say no, because you know, you've got to get through the MPs first. But you know, MPs broadly are staying loyal to Keir because they are still a bit traumatised by what happened several years where Jeremy Corbyn was the leader, where they were under siege from hard left activists in their constituencies. They were constantly trying to depose Jeremy Corbyn. It caused so much bad blood within the party. So the last thing MPs want is another leadership contest. But some of them are really anxious and they are saying things like Starmer lacks the fight, he lacks the energy, lacks the vision. There's going to be a very, very rocky period for him coming up. And finally, George, we're recording this before the other results have come in. But I think it's widely expected that Andy Street is going to be returned as mayor of the West Midlands, which again will show the Conservatives are still holding on to other parts of the electorate that are not fitting the Red War demographic. But we've still got big questions about Scotland. And I think one overall trend you're going to see is the Conservatives are doing very well across the whole of England, not just the South, the Midlands, the North, everywhere. But in Scotland, the SNP are on course to come out of this very victorious. And really, you know, the Hartlepool election result is great for Boris Johnson. But if that ends up with Scotland leaving the UK through another referendum, then I don't think anybody's going to particularly remember it. Yeah, the political caravan is going to move on very quickly over the weekend to the Scottish results and question about how big a majority or whether Nicola Sturgeon has a majority at all. But nevertheless, you will claim it as a vindication of her call for a second independence referendum. And then you're into an existential question for Boris Johnson's government, you know, of Scottish independence. However, I think, you know, speaking to people around Boris Johnson over the last few days, I think the government at Westminster will hold its nerve. It thinks that it has to grant permission for a referendum to take place in Scotland, but it won't grant permission for that referendum to happen. And there's a growing confidence that I'm picking up in Downing Street that that's where the Scottish people are as well. There have been some opinion polls suggesting that most people in Scotland don't think now is the right time to have an independence referendum, regardless of whether they were voting for Nicola Sturgeon and the SNP. I think Boris Johnson will say, look, we're in a pandemic, now is not the right time. And then once the pandemic's receded, he'll say, we're still recovering from the pandemic, whether it's a crisis in our schools or hospitals or the courts. Now's not the right time. And they'll keep playing for time. 
And I think that in the end is Boris Johnson's strategy. And I think he's going to stick to it because, frankly, offering a referendum to Scotland is a chance for him to write his name in his history books as the Prime Minister who lost Scotland. And I don't think he's going to do it. George and Jim, thank you very much. Aside from the Super Thursday of elections, the other big political story this week was in Jersey, and that was in part about Brexit. On Thursday, 58 French fishing boats arrived in the Channel Islands to protest about red tape required to fish in British waters after Brexit. The protest followed threats from senior ministers in France. They would cut off the island's power unless the situation was resolved. Ian Gust, Jersey's foreign minister, told the BBC that such issues were to be expected. This is not the first threat that the French have made to either Jersey or the United Kingdom uh, since we're into this new deal. I do think that a solution uh, can be found. This is a new deal. There was always going to be teething problems. Peter Foster, welcome back to the podcast. Can you explain the background to all this and why we ended up having this slightly bizarre side of a naval battle on Thursday? Well, you'll recall, Seb, that fishing was a big part of the negotiation, although it's a small industry during the TCA. And although a deal was done, a lot of these things were never resolved. So under the TCA, the Trade and Cooperation Agreement, France was allowed to keep its historic fishing rights around Jersey and the Challenge, and it was also allowed to keep access to the 6 to 12 mile zone, the coastal zone around the UK. But where we seem to have come unstuck is on what could be defined as historic. And in applying for permits to fish in these zones, both in the UK 6 to 12 and around Jersey, we've seen definitions coming into force. So conditions have been attached to the licenses. The French have been asked to provide data that shows that they really were historically fishing in these grounds. And they've also had to accept new conditions to the gear that they use. And the net of that is that the French fishermen feel like one way or the other, they're being cheated out of scallops and fish that they were otherwise catching. Of course, when you talk to the other side, they'll tell you the complete opposite. But the reason all those French fishing boats piled uh, into the Channel Islands was they feel that one way or the other, fairly or unfairly, their catch is going to be smaller post-Brexit than pre-Brexit. Well, Georgina Wright, it's great to have you back on the podcast. The EU has accused the UK of breaking the terms of the trade agreement that was signed up to and was ratified by the European Parliament last week over fishing. Is that correct? Because this is something Downing Street have very strongly hit back against. Well, it's really interesting watching this story um, from Paris, A, because actually the French aren't really talking about it at all. But those who are following it say two things. One, that they're not upset about the fact that they need licenses. You know, the French fishermen know that this is part of Brexit. The trade deal between the UK and the EU requires it. What they were upset about was the fact that Jersey, according to them, was asking for more than just the licenses. So there were additional requirements that were needed and that Jersey hadn't informed either the commission or the French authorities about these additional requirements. And that's why they were upset. Obviously, the Jersey and the Commission have been in negotiations. It's not easy. You know, the TCA's that trade deal landed on at Christmas time didn't give much time for French fishermen to adapt to the new circumstances. But also, it's just the fact that the French fishermen feel, well, we, we don't know what's going on. And then now we've been asked to do all these additional requirements and we're just not going to be able to catch in the sea. So they feel cheated in a certain respect. And Peter, I guess the question is, Is this a genuine misunderstanding? I think that all depends on which side you ask. In the background here is the fact that the EU, from a British perspective, has taken a very legalistic 
approach to enforcing the trade and cooperation agreement. You know, custom shipments sent home because they didn't have the right colour pen on the paperwork or tiny little mistakes. And there is a certain degree, I think, where the UK feels that the EU is playing hardball here. And so one area where the UK can play hardball back is on being sticklers on the issuing of these permits, both around the Channel Islands, which is actually governed by the Channel Islands, but also around, as I said earlier, the 6 to 12 limit in the UK. And they're not unconnected, these things. And it's also true that when you look at the internal discussions on Brexit in Brussels, whether we're talking about the Northern Ireland Protocol or the implementation of the deal, it's consistently the French that wants to hold the UK to the absolute letter of the deal that we signed, whether it's on haulage, on a whole range of areas. And therefore, I think you've got a kind of structurally adversarial situation, which I'm afraid is not going to go away. I worry that it's actually going to impact much more widely on the relationship on a bunch of areas where we really need to cooperate, like carbon trading, chemical regulations for all of our interests. Well, I was very struck, Georgina, you made the point that nobody in France is taking much notice of this. What's your view on Anglo-French relations at the moment? My sense talking to people in Paris is that the lines of communications could be really improved. In a sense, you know, Brexit was obviously always going to be very tricky. It meant that the communication between London and Paris diminished quite substantially. But now it appears that this political standoff could have been avoided. Sure, you know, those negotiations are happening between Jersey and the European Commission. But, you know, there could have been a way for London and Paris to resolve this. And yet it did not happen. So I think that one of the key things I'm taking away is there really needs to be much more communication outside of the fishing and the Brexit deal and everything else. I mean, obviously, they're still talking because they're both big security guarantors in Europe. They're both NATO allies. They both have a permanent seat on the UN Security Council. I think there is really a lot of willingness in Paris to kind of improve that cooperation, to try and think more strategically about how they can work together. And I think, Peter, when you look at the wider issues between UK-EU relations as well, it's not just fishing. We've still got those teething issues in Northern Ireland. We've still not got any clarity on financial services. And those of us who'd hoped there might be a bit of pragmatism once the UK had left and the trade deal was signed, there's not exactly a lot of indication of that at the moment. Do you think it's anything that could shift the dial in that direction? I regret to say, Seb, that I'm not sure that I do. You mentioned financial services. You know, you hear in Brussels that there won't be any real movement on that file until they get clarity on Northern Ireland, for example. The fishing dispute that's going on in the Channel Islands is also matched by another quite tricky negotiation about catch limits. The catch limits have not been agreed. So there is no trust. And frankly, there's no love lost at the moment between the UK and Brussels. One positive this week, we did see the pretty senseless dispute over the status of the EU ambassador resolved, which I guess is a step forward, then our man in Brussels will actually be able to go to meetings with the European Commission. But let's be clear, yes, the Brits have been guilty of some pretty populist, low-level politics, but so have the French, you know, threatened to cut off Jersey's electricity. I mean, for goodness sake, Macron is facing fairly tough elections. Xavier Bertrand, one of his chief rivals, of course, comes from the Pas de Calais, The French are not above petty politics, and nor are we. And in some ways, both sets of children need to be sat down and calmed down. But I'm not sure I see it happening in the short term. And how does all this play into the domestic political situation in France, Georgina? Yeah, in the region, we know that the fishing industry is huge. We also know, as you rightly pointed out, Pete, that there is a contender there that could potentially be a threat to President Macron in the re-election cycle. But again, 
Beyond that, not really. I mean, the French are concerned about COVID. Obviously, they're concerned about jobs. And actually, a lot of attention is directed at Germany. Who's going to replace Angela Merkel? And what does that mean for France's relationship with Germany and for the whole of the EU? That is where their attention is right now. And finally, Peter, just to wrap this up, what are the next things on the horizon in terms of UK-EU relations? It feels as if it's still going to be about Northern Ireland and trying to reduce friction as much as possible with the protocol and the issues there, which of course have all been destabilised further by Arlene Foster's resignation as First Minister. And of course, the question about where the DUP is going to go next and where that leaves the state of unionism. Yeah, Northern Ireland, I think, is going to be a lightning rod for continued difficulties in the relationship. I think the EU seem incapable of siloing the Northern Ireland issue. The Brits are pushing for this risk-based approach. They're saying, look, yes, all goods that go from Great Britain to Northern Ireland have to follow EU rules, but let's be realistic about the actual risk to the single market, to the health and animal plant products area. And I think the EU are going to be very reluctant to agree to a risk-based approach because they see that as a backdoor to Boris Johnson sandpapering the protocol away. And so as the Trade and Cooperation Agreement is now ratified, so the Partnership Council will now meet, the management committees will now meet, but how much we'll get out of that once we're still stuck on Northern Ireland, I have my doubts, because I doubt really that the Brits are that interested in engaging on a lot of these issues that industry would like them to engage in. It was interesting this week, Seb, that the French managed to get the Commission to back them over the fishing deal and the fishing issues in Jersey, when actually privately quite a lot of EU member states will raise their eyebrows at the French making a fuss. But if it comes down to a choice between backing the French, even if they are being quite difficult, and backing the Brits, they'll always back the French, which means that we're in a kind of ratchet here where the Commission, even when it doesn't want to get dragged into these disputes, will find it just has no choice. Well, Peter and Georgina, thank you very much for joining us. And that's it for this week's episode of Payne's Politics. If you like the podcast, then we'd recommend subscribing. You can find us through all the usual channels, Apple Podcasts, Spotify, Google Podcasts, and your smart speaker to receive episodes as soon as they're released. We also do love some positive ratings and nice reviews. Payne's Politics was presented by me, Sebastian Payne, and produced by Anna Dedder and Josh Delamere. The sound engineer was Breen Turner. Until next time, thanks for listening. Did you know the Capital Ideas podcast now has a new monthly edition hosted by Capital Group CEO Mike Gitlin? Through the words and experiences of investment professionals, you'll discover who was their best mentor, what's a mistake they made that changed their approach, and how do they find their next great idea. Subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. Published by American Funds Distributors, Inc. Planning for your next trip? Elevate your travel style with Quince. Quince has all the jet-setting essentials you'll want for your next getaway, like European linen premium luggage options, buttery soft Italian leather bags, and so much more. And it's all priced at 50 to 80% less than similar brands. Plus, Quince only works with factories that use safe and ethical manufacturing practices. Pack your bags with high-quality essentials you'll be wearing for vacations to come with Quince. Go to quince.com trip for free shipping and 365-day returns.